And the pitch. Swing and a base hit to left center field. And Camellia's going to score. This game is over. On an RBI hit by Thanks for taking the time to download and listen to the Philadelphia Baseball Review Podcast. I'm Patrick Gordon, founder and executive editor of the Philadelphia Baseball Review. Our mission is to cover baseball at all levels throughout the Philly region, with a particular focus on promoting the amateur, high school, and college ranks. Our aim is to tell the untold baseball stories across the Quaker City. So please be sure to follow me on Twitter if you're not already at PGordonPBR. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you may be listening. Also, leave us a review. And be sure to visit PhiladelphiaBaseballReview.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Now, let's get into today's show. All right, I'm joined here tonight with Neil Langto. Uh, he's an award-winning author, historian. He's written four books, including Fair Dealing and Clean Playing, The Hilldale Club, and The Development of Black Professional Baseball. He's also authored a book profiling Philly's own Roy Campanella. He was recognized in 2005 with the Seymour Medal from the Society for American Baseball Research for his text, Negro League Baseball. And just last year was honored by the American Society of Journalists and Authors for his text, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and their clash over America's future. I've been wanting to speak to you for quite a while here, Neil. Thanks for taking the time to uh, join me here tonight. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Yeah. So you actually are not from Philadelphia, correct, Neil? No, I'm uh, I'm from New England, and, and I'm still... Uh a hardcore Red Sox fan. It's hard, hard to leave that. I mean, I, I do kind of like the Phillies as my second team, but I have to admit, I'm still a Red Sox guy. I mean, I grew up suffering with the Red Sox for many, many years and having them disappoint me. And then of course, younger Red Sox fans don't realize how they, you know, they've turned it around. They won four world series in the last 20, 20 years, which no one could have sure. foreseen. It's kind of like what's happening with the Eagles. If the Eagles happen to win this weekend, when we're, we're recording right. this, obviously in, in advance before it's played, but um, you know, it would be two people never thought the Eagles were ever going to win a, a Super Bowl. Uh, and here they are potentially could win a second one within the span of five years. So, I mean, these things do turn. So sometimes it's worth yeah. suffering for, for many years with a, <laughs> with a team or an organization. So, but I mean, I think Boston and, you know, New, I'm from Rhode Island, but I mean, I think New England fans and, and, and Philly fans, and they, they take their sports very seriously. Uh, I think a lot of the East Coast uh, cities tend to. Uh, really have very strong feelings and strong fan bases. So I think, um, you know, I think there's that, that commonality. Now, although you're, you're from up north, you, you did attend uh, two schools here with Penn and Temple. What was your time like in Philly uh, as a student? Well, you know, that's how I got interested in doing work on on the Negro Leagues. It was really through my connection with, with the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, I graduated from Penn uh, with a degree in English. And of course, those of us with degrees in English, it doesn't always lead necessarily to gainful employment. And at the time, I was looking for something to do when I first graduated. And I happened to see this advertisement um, that John Holway, he, he's, he's a guy who's mm-hmm. done work on the Negro Leagues for years. He's one yep. of the first ones to go in there and interview these players back in the 70s. And he was looking for someone to go into the Philadelphia newspapers, the black newspapers, and basically record um box scores for his own work. Yeah. He was doing work at the time compiling statistics. And you know, I, I knew a little bit about the Negro Leagues because I was always a big baseball fan and a big history buff. So I knew a little bit about them, but not that much. 
Um, but he hired me to to go into the you know go into the free library and just to basically photocopy um, newspapers, and that really mm-hmm. opened my eyes. I was I was totally fascinated. I just I didn't know about the leagues, how they worked, how they operated, and you know that there was this whole other you know world out there of baseball that you know we didn't know much about, and really not just baseball, but a whole separate world of African-American institutions um, that was being covered in the black newspaper. So that's what really ended up having a tremendous impact on me as far as professionally, as far as, um, you know, my, my, my first books, which were were about the Negro leagues, because, you know, getting interested in that led me, you know, I was at, I went to Temple for graduate school, I changed to history and my master's thesis, which actually started as a seminar paper was on the Hilldale baseball club, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, right. the Hilldale Baseball Club, and that kind of ended up turning into a book. And that, that's what got me started on doing this work on the Negro Leagues, because I felt, you know, it was it was fascinating to me, but also it was something that had not been, I thought, really seriously explored. Uh, some people had done some work on it, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it had been studied sure. as, from an academic perspective. So that's something I, I tried to bring uh, in my own work. And I ended up doing a lot of, a lot of the stuff I did with the Negro Leagues was a lot of looking at the businesses of the leagues too, and how these sure. leagues operated and functioned. Um, so I, I do think the Philadelphia connection was very, was very important to me as far as introducing me to this. Certainly if I've been up in New England, I mean, Philadelphia's ne- uh, Boston's Negro League connection is pretty peripheral. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think I ever would have possibly even, even known as much about it. Um, I mean, Boston, of course, has has a great baseball history too, and goes back as far as Philadelphia's. But I think, uh, as far as Negro League is concerned, I think Philadelphia is is, is one of the most important cities in Negro League yeah. history. It doesn't get the props it should because they tend to people tend to focus on Kansas City, which is very important yep. too. Um, and I think Pittsburgh, which I think is a little overrated, because I think Pittsburgh was never that important. They had great teams, but it's not as a, sure. as a venue. Uh, but Philadelphia right. had had solid support for its Negro League teams for years and years and years and years and always had teams here, had a very, very strong, um, you know, fan base here. So I think it was, I do think it's probably one of the most important sites for Negro League baseball historically. Yeah. And, and uh, Neil, you and I were talking about this before we, we went live here, but you know your work on the Hilldale Club is what really ins- it's one of the the works that really inspired me. Um, the other one was "To Everything a Season" by Bruce uh, Kuklik. I believe I'm saying his last name correctly, but uh, apologies if not. And what those two books really did for me was it made it so that I could, when I was going for my master's degree in journalism, make the argument that there can be an academic side to sports. See, when, you know, in journalism, especially at the undergrad level, and again, I, I love Temple, that's where I went, but it was always kind of, oh, you're one of the sports guys, and everybody wanted, a lot of the guys wanted to go that route. And then when I went into the grad level, it was sort of like, all right, what are you really going to write about? And so, in turn, I it took a lot of kind of pushing, I think, to get professors to understand, hold on, no, there's a ton of stuff that you can look at from a sport like baseball and turn it into academia. So, you know, one of the biggest things that I got into was researching the the black press and people like Brian Carroll um, and others that were really involved with researching the black press and what role they played in helping break down the color barrier. Um, you know, so looking at, you know, the Philadelphia Tribune and uh, the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Carrier and seeing what they did. And then in turn, 
you know, bringing that research into what I would teach in, in my journalism classes and such. So it really is an area that um, can turn academic and, and there's a ton of solid research out there. Um, and I think it's just continuing to grow. And I think now, especially with the Negro Leagues, with Major League Baseball now considering um, the Negro Leagues, Major Leagues, I think we're going to see more and more of that. But that brings me up to a question I have for you. So, you know, one of my joys, I love doing this, is going back and looking up or trying to find a box score in a newspaper for a game that, you know, something odd happened in or, um, you know, just something unique that happened. But maybe it's from the 1910s or 20s, whatever. Um, you know, going back and looking at those old articles and seeing those box scores in print, um, there's something about that, isn't there? It's just like a, a cool feeling to, to read those. It is fun. I think with the Negro Leagues, it's frustrating. Um, one, of, one of the problems, particularly in the 20s and 30s, they got better in the 40s, but a lot of the box scores from that period did not put it bats in. And I know mm-hmm. people doing the who have been trying to compile the Negro League statistics. They're up against that because yeah. you can't. It, you have to. You have to guess. You know, because it's yeah. weird. In those days, a lot of the box scores they would put uh, they would put runs, hits. I think putouts and something else, but they would not yep. put at bats, errors, or something. So, yeah. so trying to you know, it's a very tantalizing piece of the puzzle that's missing in trying to compile statistics. Uh, and the Negro Leagues were never that great at doing statistics in the first place. And as far as getting getting compliance from the owners to submit their, you know, their right. box scores to the league office and things like that. But that, that so that's that's a missing piece of the puzzle um, sure. quite a bit in 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 the 20s and the 30s, particularly, you know, in, in some of the Eastern papers. But, yeah, I mean, the box scores are great. I mean, just to see you see who was there. And I mean, these these people who are brought to life, you know, somebody just got see yeah. guys who played one time, two times, but they're there. You know, we know they played in the leagues. They played in the Negro Leagues or, yeah. or whatever, um, but their names are there. And, and, and sometimes we can piece together who they were. You know, this guy, right. uh, you know, we, we know because the, the Philadelphia Tribune mentioned, hey, this guy's going to be tried out this week. And you see his name in a box score two times and then he disappears into the ether of history. But we, we know he was there. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so he, there's a story to be told in, in these in these guys. And I think a lot right. of them are brought, have been brought back to life, you know, with with the work that's been done um, yeah. on, on the Negro Leagues. I mean, so much has been done. I mean, my books came out in 94 and 2004. Um, but I mean, a lot of a tremendous amount of work has been done since then as far as statistics and, and trying to right. trying to uncover the names and, and things like that of people who played in leagues. But some of them will be lost forever, unfortunately, because, again, we're. Yeah, with the Negro Leagues, we're we're dependent on on really the black press more than anything. And the black press was a once a week, once a week uh, entity. They couldn't cover yeah. everything. They had maybe a page or two of sports, so they couldn't cover everything. And and unfortunately, we don't have a lot of archival sources for the Negro Leagues that that right. that would help us. Uh, we have some, um, but but not not as much as we'd like to have. To again, to sort of you know being able to do the really sophisticated right. analysis and, 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 uh, uh, examination of some of these things. It's like, I just did this book on world war one last year, my last book, and there's so much available. You're overwhelmed with the sources that are available in the books and the, and the diaries and the, and the letters and doing Negro league research. It, it's very hard. You, you're, you're trying to scrape anything available, you know, because there's just right. not as much there's the, there's the black press is, is going to be the, the, the biggest part 
Uh, but the other sources, unfortunately, are just are just not there. And now, and, and we've lost the oral sources. Most of the guys who played in the league sure. during their peak are, are are no longer with us. Yeah, and that's where it, it really becomes difficult. I know uh, the 1925 Hilldale Club. I, I pieced together. Man, I talked to a lot of different people. I, I really wanted to hone in on. You know, if you look at, at Negro League stats, if you go on, let's say, Baseball Reference or Seam Heads or any of these places, you're going to see a lot of stats up there that are correct from box scores, but they're not all necessarily league games, right? So let's say Hilldale, they played in the Eastern Colored League in 1925. I want to say, and I don't have it right in front of me, but they're, the Eastern Colored League, maybe they played 65 games somewhere around that, there that would, that would that would be about right i would say yeah. i think they played you know maybe at their peak maybe 60 70 games yeah uh, those but years. if but if you look in totality they may have played 100 and uh 50 60 70 games sometimes um you know teams you go way back, uh, you know, in the 1920s or 1910s, they'd play close to 200 games in a year. And what would happen is so many of these games would be against either, you know, semi-pro teams or amateur teams. And in turn, those stats would get all filtered in with actual league games. So then you're looking at statistics and, and you just don't know, like, well, what what was this from? So I, in turn, went and and tried, and I believe I got really, really, or am really, really close to Every official ECL game in 1925 for Hilldale, having actual box scores, being able to compare, all right, what is their record? I think the only newspaper that was publishing the records at that time was uh, the Pittsburgh Carrier. So I was going back and forth between, all right, on let's say August 1st, the Carrier had the record at this, and I was able to piecemeal what box scores they were considering as official games because at that point there were a lot of games being played that also – were just exhibitions and they would only decide that at the field the day of, um, you know, and then trying to go back and, and piecemeal this and say, all right, look, this is what I have for the, let's say 65 games um, that are official for Hilldale from that season. And it's interesting to, to go back and look, but this is where stories about, you know, whether it be Josh Gibson with 800 home runs and Satchel Page with all these strikeouts, they kind of get played up a little bit. And, and you know, I don't know if if people really understand or know. Yeah, there was a lot of good competition, but there was also a lot of amateur competition, barnstorming and things like that to come into this. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100% because I feel there's been too much um, nonsense might be too strong. But I, I think people don't understand Negro League statistics and they're thrown around now too too casually because of Major League sure. Baseball making this decision to consider the Negro Leagues a, 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 another league, a legitimate Major League. Um, the, the leagues just weren't weren't run well. I mean, there's just, again, right. it's something I studied in, in the books I wrote. They weren't run well. It wasn't their fault. Some of it was economic issues. Some of it was simply these, these guys were trying to make a buck and they didn't care about the organization. They cared about squeezing out as much money as they could. Yeah. Uh, but it's, for me, it's very, it's very hard to make comparisons of leagues where they didn't necessarily play the same number of games every year. They didn't mm-hmm. play the same opponents this number of times, you know, like in MLB or even the minor leagues, you always had in those days, it was like eight teams, a league, you play 22 right. games against each opponent, 11 home, 11 away. So it was all divided very nicely, very equitably among all yeah. the teams. And then Eagle leagues, you could play Hilldale could play uh, 15 games against um, the, the, 
uh, the Lincoln Giants and only seven games against the Brooklyn Royal Giants. And five of those games could have been at Hilldale Park and two of them could be at New York. So, I mean, there was there was all kinds of things which to me can can invalid, not quite invalidate, but can complicate the statistical picture yep. when you're not playing the same number of games. And also you have to think about leagues where – you you're not playing every day so you can throw your best pitchers on certain days type of deal you're yeah. only playing once a week so the rotations aren't set up the same so i i just think it's a very difficult thing to make comparisons as far as statistically uh yeah. between the negro leagues and 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 mlb um and i think particularly in the 30s and 40s because the leagues were i think run much worse in the 30s and 40s i think in the 20s right. the the Foster's Negro National League, and I think what Bolden was doing with Eastern Color League, they were trying really hard to sure. to match the organization. I think they were run a little bit better. I think in the, the Depression was so bad in the 30s, they were trying to get what they could get, any of them. And in the 40s, the money was coming in during World War II, uh, and the leagues were doing well financially. And I think the impetus and the incentive to try to even set up an organized ball, an organized league was not there. And there's a lot of, a lot of you, you've read the, you've, you've obviously mm-hmm. read the the press. There's a lot of frustration in the, in the press in those days of yes. why yeah. isn't the league run better? You know, what is all this nonsense about this game? This game was not a league game. This game is not an official game. What is all, I mean, that, that type of, of situation. So I yeah. think I, I, I do wish that the, the general public understood this a little better um, about the nature of these leagues and how they actually operated. I mean, it, it's like I wrote the book on Campanella, and Campanella even said when he went to the, to the minors, he, you know, he said, I, you know, these leagues are not; they weren't run well. You know, the the the, the worst run minor league tended to be run better than the Negro leagues, just because they had a little bit more money. They could play every day, even in even in Class D ball, they played every day uh, against right. their other league teams. And, and the Negro leagues, they never did. They would play. Like you said, maybe 70, 80 games a year would be against other league opponents and the other 100 or whatever could be against white semi-pro, some of whom were very good. Right. Uh, and then some who would be scrubs, basically, you know, you know, yeah. white teams that didn't have a chance in hell at beating these teams. So the competition was very variable. And I think you have to look at that, too. I mean, can a, can a team be that great if they've got to face subpar competition three days a week? So that that would right. be another thing I would say too, which throws something into the into the mix. Uh, on the other hand, the Negro leagues had very small rosters, much smaller than MLB. Mm-hmm. They probably had like fifteen players, ten to fifteen yeah. or sixteen players. Um, they had to travel, you know, a ridiculous amount. So, I mean, my feeling is always, but I think I do think, you know, the best Negro league players absolutely were major league caliber, but I don't think the leagues themselves were major league caliber. Right. Um, I don't think because of the the circumstances, I don't think it's it would be fair to compare them that their their day to day operations were on the same level as major. Like I would say maybe triple double A um, when, you, when right. you when you mix them all together. Um, but the best players obviously were major league caliber. That that I would say emphatically. Right. Yeah, one of the things uh, I've spoken with Phil Dixon, um, who's a historian like yourself, and has done quite a bit of work on the Philadelphia Giants. And um, he's also done some stuff about the Pittsburgh Crawfords and he's written some, some outstanding texts as well. And, and in my conversation with him, you know, when I first came across Negro statistics and, and the proliferation of baseball reference and all this, I was kind of like, wow, now we finally have numbers to compare these players to major leaguers. And I was extremely naive thinking, you know, that you could do that, 
on any level of, you know, um, equality, let's say, right? And I've since kind of backed off significantly from that. Like, you can definitely infer some things from the numbers, but yeah, you're never going to get a clear picture. But what Phil mentioned to me that I think uh, has stuck with me is don't assume any statistic you see is real unless you've tallied it yourself. Now, he can stand behind that as a historian, and he goes through and he does. He counts every box score. I think for, I want to say, 1906 Philadelphia Giants, he has a book about. It's either 06 or 08. And he's gone through and he's done, I don't know, 150, 200 box scores, went back in and redid recaps for every game. And so in turn, he can stand behind the vast majority of the statistics he has. And he openly admits, hey, some box scores didn't include, you know, um, at, none of them included at bats, um, you know, but walks or, and, and some of this stuff. That's the other thing that goes into it. You look at figures like stolen bases and um, hell even walks and strikeouts from a pitcher some of that isn't like very clear in these box scores i think people if you're thinking of a way a box score is now it's not what they look like back yeah i I would agree and what one thing that what you just reminded me of something when i did the campanella book i i decided i'm gonna try to i'm gonna try to do his negro league record you know because he played campanella Mm -hmm. played the negro leagues from from 37 to 40 45 Mm-hmm. So I I actually tried to piece together his his statistics, and I think I probably found about as much as what's out there because I I, yeah. I dug into all these little obscure newspapers because I tried to find where the Elite Giants were playing and things like that, and I I dug up a few boxers they didn't have before because I was turning over to Larry Lester. I don't know if you know Larry, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've, I've worked with Larry. Before. Yeah, and Larry Larry has been. I'm not sure what Larry's done with his stash, but he's kind of he was kind of the go to guy. So I was like, <laughs> Larry, I found one here. Take this one. Yeah, but. Yeah. My statistics are very different from what from what the Hall of Fame is. The Hall of Fame stats are for Campanella. I think mine are more accurate, frankly. Um, yes. I, I mentioned that to Baseball Reference. I said, I just said, hey, you know, my my statistics are a little are are differ substantially from them, and they didn't really weren't too interested in hearing it. But um, that's I agree very much with what Phil says. That is true. It's like um, I wish I, I really would like to see Retro Sheet take on the Negro Leagues. They, they, they're yeah. doing a little bits and pieces of it right now. But yes. you know, what Retro Sheet did for MLB, which is basically acting as a clearinghouse for every bit of material on every single game that's ever been played in Major League history and, and compiling that to get the best thing we have possible. I think it would be nice if we had that for the Negro Leagues where we had one central place. I think a lot of people have right. hoarded. You have hoarding of people, hoarding of box scores with the Negro Leagues and everyone sure. has their own little territory. So I don't, I mean, I think even now I feel like there's different people doing different work. I know seam heads. I, I know they've been doing work on it. I don't know what Larry yeah. Lester's been doing. As I said, I've heard that the retro sheet has, I know retro sheet has put a few things up there, like the all-star games. I think maybe the world they series. Have, yep. I would like to see them do more, but I don't know if they're going to do it. Um, but I think that's yeah. that's a problem right there. I mean, even things like you know, Satchel Page did this. That I mean, the thing is that people don't realize Page was was a was a guy they brought out there. They pitched him for three innings, game after game. It's like he was not very rarely in the forties. He was being was he right. used as a nine inning pitcher? He was like he was booked as show Page to the fans for two or three innings, and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So. Can we compare someone like that statistics? I don't say, of course, Page was a fantastic pitcher, Hall of Fame in his right. prime. But can we really? What can we? What can we actually draw from the statistics he generated in situations like right. that? So, it's 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 again, it's it's a it's a Negro, Negro leagues are messy. Is what I can say. Yeah. Their yeah. statistics are messy, um, and I do think I, I think the statistics are being thrown around a little too glibly today. Right. 
Um, but I don't know if that's going to change or, you know. Yeah. Well, and Satchel's an interesting case because he, um, you know, he's one where I don't know the exact year. I want to say it was, it was, I want to say in the 40s, um, you know, with the Philadelphia Stars, I believe he made one or two starts. Um, I'm trying to think also, I think Oscar Charleston also, uh, one or two starts with the Philadelphia Stars. And, you know, you go through and you see, oh, wow, this this guy played with Philadelphia in the 40s. And it's like, well, he played one game and, you know, or two games and was probably on a barnstorming tour of some sort anyway. Um, and that's where it gets really confusing, too. I know uh, the online Negro League Museum, I think it's I forget the exact website for it. Um, but if you take a look and, and, you know, you can look up a lot of different players on there and you see. It's not uncommon for some ball players from the Negro Leagues to have been on like 15, 20 teams at any given point. And that's not even including if they would go down to Cuba for the winter or whatever uh, would come of that. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of these like, okay, we're going to do a promotional game. Like sometimes, like, you know, in the 40s, they would do like double headers at a lot of the major league parks. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the second game would be, oh, we'll merge two teams together or something like that. So that's when you'll see. Uh, someone who wasn't normally on the stars, for example, play for the stars for one game. You know, he really right. wasn't a member, but he his team merged with them that day or something like that. Or as, as you said, it could be a uh, uh, a post game season. I mean, usually the Negro Leagues would wrap up salary around September fifteenth, but then they would keep playing, and some of those games were simply whatever we can get, we'll pay, and then yeah. they, and then you then you start merging players together. And those are really not the the general gist of the team during the season. So right. again, it gets it gets confusing, um, and I think it, that's why I'm saying I think uh, the the lack of of quite precision about the Negro leagues is still is still there, where people tend to right. still try to think of them as conventional leagues, and they really weren't. They were they were far from conventional leagues. And again, we should be impressed with the talent they were able to develop uh, right. with the under the circumstances they were under. Um, but their organization was was very, very far from, as I said, even the lowest minor league was probably organized yeah. better than Negro Leagues because they just did not have the institutional structure. And they didn't have their own parks. And that's the whole thing, too. You, how can you yeah. have a league? It's one thing, as I said in, 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 in Negro League Baseball, the book I wrote was very hard to have a, a normal league when not every team has its own park and has control of yeah. its park. It, it, trying to make a schedule is is, is impossible. And trying to divide home games and away games becomes extremely difficult. So that was that was that was a big big issue yeah. over the years, and, I, and that's why I think in the, in the twenties there was a little bit more control over the parks. And even Hilldale in Philadelphia, they played out in um, Derby, and mm-hmm. that was a little a little bitty park. It was kind of crappy, but it was their park, and they yeah. had control over it. But I mean, I think later on it became unsuitable. You know, when the stars came yeah. along in the 30s, they did not want to go back to playing out there. They thought it was just no. too far from the city and really not not feasible. Then they played at 44 in the park side, which was no great shakes either, as far as the park mm-hmm. was concerned either. But um, Philly had it better than some other cities, which had nothing. It had no, no place yeah. to play. I mean, the New York teams tend to have to play at Yankee Stadium or the Polo Grounds or whatever. And that was expensive, very, very expensive to play at those type of venues. You had to you had to bring in a lot of fans to make it worthwhile. And that's why it worked right. a little bit during World War II when the Negroes were doing so well. They were drawing 10,000 fans a game. But once they stopped drawing fans when when Jackie integrated, you, you can't play at Yankee Stadium when you're only getting 2,000 people there because right. the rent was so high. So that's not something that yeah. killed. There's a lot of things we could talk about here. But parks were, were a very important situation sure. and a problem in the Negro Leagues. And one of the things that that hurt the leagues and hurt them from ever really being able to function as well as they wanted to. Right. Now, one of the things that I 
am really interested in in, in one of my areas of research and and I, I've put together quite a lengthy list and there's a couple of books that have done some similar things, but I'm really trying to dig really deep into it is the idea of interracial games and and Hilldale, for example, um, in the postseason. So once the Negro League season's complete and also once the major league season's complete, um, major league teams would take on some major league teams would take on Negro league teams. And it seems like Hilldale was involved in quite a few of these interracial games, whether it be playing the Philadelphia A's um, or, or some other teams. I'm curious in your research, what you've come across, if that's something that um, Hilldale, you know, seemed to do more than some other teams. Um, You know, what, what were sort of your findings with that? And what do you take from that? Um, You know, obviously, it stopped. I want to say in the late twenties, early thirties, there there really was kind of the the stop for Major League Baseball on this barnstorming and you know playing black uh, the Negro teams, the black teams, and all. Um, but from the Hilldale standpoint, nineteen seventeen, nineteen eighteen, when I think they started to to play these interracial games, how much of that has come across in your research? Well, so I, again, I, this is a little bit. I've done the research in a while, but it's coming back to me. Sure. Um, yeah. As I recall, Hilldale played, I think, nineteen seventeen. I think through through the mid twenties, um, the closest they came, I think, in twenty three, when they they really crushed this this team of mostly athletics. I think they won five out of six or something like that, and that was mm-hmm. almost an intact team. Um, very rarely. Were they intact? I mean, it was very rarely where a Negro League team would play all nine starters from oh, yeah. another team. Yeah. But the, the, as I recall, in '23, uh, it was it was like I think six or seven of the A's, and I think in '26, I know they I know they beat Lefty Grove once. You know, the yep. you know, made a Lefty Grove a great great left handed pitcher pitch for the A's mm-hmm. won, won thirty one games uh, thirty one of the last thirty game winners. Um, Supposedly a, a great racist too, uh, and, and was defeated. He was beaten uh, by 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 uh, the Negro League team by Hilldale. So, um, I mean, I I think what it shows, of course, is that the best Negro League teams could could easily hold their own in Major League Baseball. Like, and the funny thing is that in the twenties, the the thought of the way integration was going to occur and, and the way Rube Foster had envisioned it was like. The way they're going to do is they're going to they're going to just simply bring in one black team, and all black team will be brought into the major league. Right. That will be the way integration will start. And they might have made it work possibly uh, that way. There was some precedent for doing that in the minor leagues back in the 1880s. I think they had done that a couple of times. But I think if you had taken say Hilldale in the 20s, supplemented them with a few other players from the Eastern Color League, they would have done very well. Certainly, they would have done better than the the A's of the early 20s or, or the Phillies yeah. of the early 20s, which were dreadful, dreadful teams. Um, so, I mean, I, I have no no question, no 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 question all that uh, that the, the 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 a team like Hilldale, which was probably one of the the tops of the 20s, uh, would have done very well in Major League Baseball. I mean, they had had great players. Um, and I, I, I actually think too, even by the forties, when you think of in the forties, you had about 400 major league players at any given time. If you say conservatively, 40 of those spots could have been held, maybe even 50 by African-American players had the color line been dropped. That's roughly three or four Negro league teams 
being yeah. brought into the league. So if you take the cream of the crop of, of any Negro League team at any given time, they're all major league caliber. So I, I would say in the uh, during the Negro League era, I would say probably at least a half of the players on every team was probably major league caliber. Uh, but then you have, you know, again, the rosters were small on the Negro right. League. And sometimes they had guys who were just scrubs, you know, who were young high school kids. They tried out very briefly, didn't stick around very much. So there were some guys who were obviously were not major league caliber. Not everyone who played in the, in the Negro Leagues was major league caliber, but right. the best were clearly major league caliber. Uh, I mean, someone like Oscar Charleston in the 20s would, would, would have been a superstar. Mm-hmm. He would have been a super duper duper star if he had played in the, in the major leagues in the 20s. And it's a yeah. shame he never got recognition. I mean, he didn't get. He not only didn't get much recognition among whites, he didn't get much recognition among blacks. I have there's a quote in the Hilldale book where I have one of the one of the black sports writers was saying something like, It's so frustrating that our people don't even know our own players that well. Because there are a lot of black fans who followed white baseball before more than they followed black baseball. Yeah. And and some of the reason was simply because how 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 can you avoid the massive publicity that Major League Baseball had? You know, it's being put in your face every day by these by the daily newspapers. All you have, the only thing that, that the Negroes can compare with is, is a once a week newspaper in your community. If yeah. You have that. You have nothing else. You don't have radio. You have no other ways of publishing. You have no magazine articles about you. So the media, right. the white media, such as was so powerful so that it's not surprising that there were some African-American fans who didn't even care that much about the Negro. Like, just, again, come back to Charleston. Charleston was was a fantastic player. I mean, he his career, he's about the same age as Babe Ruth, roughly. I think he and Ruth would have been contemporaries. I think they started their careers roughly at like 1914, 1915. Yep. And these mm-hmm. guys, both of them, you know, Charleston would have been as big as Ruth if he had played during his time. Someone who could play like Ty Cobb, but could also hit for, hit for power. It could, I mean, he just could do everything. But he right. was not recognized. And he wasn't recognized in the way that Gibson and Page were in the 30s and 40s. I mean, Page got a lot of publicity in the white media, um, as did Gibson. But I think Page was was already getting a lot, a lot of attention um, in the white press in the 30s and 40s. There was there was more interest um, in him. And basically, you know, Page was a personality, too, you know, for better or for worse. Right. Controversy about some of some of the, his behavior. Kind of he played up some of kind of being a character. Um but I, I do think uh, a lot of these guys should have gotten the attention that that was robbed of them in the twenties, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, it's while you were bringing that up, I, I pulled it up on um, on a website. I have um, a list of a lot of the Negro League versus uh, White Major League games, and and so the game we were talking or that you mentioned with Lefty Grove was October 2nd, 1926, Hilldale six, the Earl Max stars one and uh, the Daisies got 10 hits off Lefty Grove, Oscar Charleston homered for Hilldale, Nip winners, one of the best Negro league pitchers there, tossed complete game, surrendered just seven hits, Otto Briggs, huge uh, player with Hilldale, finished with three hits. And this is the sort of thing that just – um like, I just love talking about it. I love the history of this. And these names, too. I mean, Phil Cockrell. I mean, there's so many players with this Hilldale, squ- uh, Hilldale squad from, you know, 20 to 27, 28 that, I mean, it just was a hell of a run, a hell of a ball club. Yeah, it's, it's sad what happened. I mean, Cockrell ended up getting stabbed to death in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a case of mistaken identity. I mean, Briggs died, I think, fairly early on. I mean, a lot of these guys died young. I mean, Judy Johnson is one of the only ones who did live a very long, long enough to see the Negro Leagues kind of yeah. be revived and, and 
and be and get interviewed. You know, someone like John Holway, who I mentioned earlier, Holway. Again, we have a great debt to him because he went and tracked all these guys down and interviewed them. And right. he interviewed he interviewed uh, uh, Johnson. He got to nip Winters even before he died. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the, our memories, our collective memories of the Negro League, especially from that period, it's really it's it's from those those interviews that he did, uh, mm-hmm. which are, are, are really important as oral history, because if no one had done them, they would have been forgotten. Because I think people had forgotten about the Negro Leagues in the 60s and even in the early 70s. I mean, Robert Peterson with Only the Ball was White's the other person who we have a, a great sure. debt to for for bringing bringing this out again, um, but also also hallway. Hey, you said we we're going to talk about Ed Bolden in this interview. We're we going to get to him, or we got time for Ed Bolden? A little discussion of Ed yeah. Bolden. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's go in and, and talk about the stars. And and I mean, Ed Bolden again. He's uh, another person that I feel like is overlooked in um, when you talk about the history of baseball, especially the history of baseball in Philadelphia. Um, you know, helping bring the stars and also all the involvement he had with Hilldale. Um, yeah, so let's – tell us about Ed Bolden. He, here's a guy – I think he should be in the Hall of Fame myself. I mean, they, they, I agree. They, they've put a lot of people in the Hall of Fame, Negro League people in the Hall of Fame. I think Bolden deserves to be – I mean, so a, a quick quick background on Ed Bolden. He was, he was a, a post office guy mm-hmm. um, who, who happened to love baseball, and he put together what was basically a, a team of teenagers. Like it was a, it was a Sandlot team. Uh, amateur team in 1910. Um, he was the manager of this club. And from year to year, he built it up and made it more successful. He advertised it and it got so successful. He started to make it, he started to bring in ringers and then professionals. And then they became one of the best teams in the country, the Hilldale club. Um, so he was extremely successful with Hilldale and he helped put together the first Eastern professional black league, the Eastern color league in 1923. So, he was a giant in Philadelphia baseball with Hilldale. was very successful. They, they were in the first Black World Series. Uh, then when Hilldale went belly up, um, he then was involved in the second major Negro League team in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Stars, who operated from 1933 to 52. Um, this, with, this, with Hilldale, Bolden ran the club with a group of other African-Americans, most of, most of them were postal employees, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And they set up this Hilldale Corporation. Um, with the stars, the money man was Eddie Gottlieb. And that name may mean something to some of your listeners. But Eddie Gottlieb, of yep. course, a great, great, great person in, in basketball. is very involved with the uh, – Big promoter, uh, yeah. Yeah, great, great promoter in basketball, very much involved um, with Philadelphia basketball for years and years. But also people forget he was involved with baseball. He was a – he was a booking agent in, on the East Coast, but he was the one who put up the money for the stars and Bolden just ran the team. Um, but Bolden was involved with with Negro Leagues from 1910 till he died in 1950. I mean, his career is almost as long as Connie Mack. I mean, Connie Mack was manager yeah. of the age from 1901 to 50 or whatever. Uh, so Bolden, I think I don't think there's anyone in the Negro Leagues who had such a who had such a long career as Bolden. And he was always very, very committed to trying to build this institution. And one thing interesting about Bolden is that when the whole talk of integration was coming, some of the owners were all, oh, I don't know, it's going to hurt our bottom line. And and Bolden very emphatically said, I think it will help us because I think the players will have something to strive for. I'm totally for it. And in fact, the first time that a Negro League player was sold to Major League Baseball was the, was Roy Partlow. Uh, when mm-hmm. when um, Branch Rickey, 
signed Jackie Robinson, no no money changed hands. When he signed Roy Campanella and Don Newcomb, no money changed hands. So there were three in a row that Ricky signed in 45-46. But because the Stars had a contract with Roy Partlow, Branch Ricky paid them $1,000 for Roy Partlow's contract. So that was the first actual sale. And that says something about Bolden operating his team on a higher level and making sure that there was a contract in place that Ricky had to pay for him. But I do think he's a guy who's been overlooked I always yeah. give him a shout out. I said, I don't, I don't think he's in the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame yet. I don't know why he's not, but he, I don't think he's in there yet. But he should be in there because he's a he's a seminal figure, I think, in yeah. baseball history in Philadelphia. Yeah, and I remember reading recently that he was on the verge, and he may have lost his job with the post office when he was trying to balance bringing, I believe, the stars. Um, you'll bring in the stars to fruition, and it took him some time to get his job back with the post office, but he was able to do so. Um, yeah, very interesting character that I feel like flies under the radar and just doesn't get the recognition. There's a couple books, um, you know, that, that touch on sort of what he's brought to the table, but I agree. Somebody definitely worthy of, um, you know, worthy of another look and worthy of, um, you know, worthy of some attention. And, uh, you know, the stars are interesting too. I mean, we had Hildale kind of fizzle and then you had, uh, the Philadelphia Tigers in 1928, I want to say. Uh, they were around for a, a handful of games, and then some things happened uh, a bit shady, and that team ended up uh, basically ceasing to exist. And then the Philadelphia Stars came around, I want to say, in 32, 33. Um, I think 33 was their first official season. 32, I think they were doing some exhibitions. And they came on and, and won the series that first season, correct? Uh, second season, 34. Second they won season. 34. Yeah, yeah thirty three. They were actually an independent. That was the year yep. that Greenlee put the league together. It was barely hanging on, and the Stars stayed out. Were were kind of an independent league, uh, independent club. And then thirty four, they it was like a refurbished Negro National League. And, and one other thing interesting you might mention: there were the Backrack Giants who were playing out of Philadelphia in the thirties. They were, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, a Philadelphia based team. They were playing at Forty uh, Eighth and Spruce at Passon Field. Uh, so that was that was another venue which people have forgotten about, but they used to actually play in West mm-hmm. Philly. That was and, and actually Hildale would use it sometimes as well. Um, that that particular venue. I mean, the Stars had some good players, but they never had the oomph of Hildale. I mean, Hildale was the top club in the twenties and one of the best clubs in the country. Whereas the Stars had some good seasons and they did win in thirty four. Uh, but they never were a dominant as dominant. I mean, the the, the Homestead right. Grays were the dominant Eastern club. Uh, for most of the 30s and 40s, you could throw the Crawfords in a little bit too, while while they were still functioning. Um, but the Stars were never—I mean, they were—they were a good venue financially. That's why I always tell people about Philadelphia was probably one of the best financial venues in the Eastern uh, leagues because they had, as I said, they had a loyal fan base. It was it was stronger right. in many ways than than Pittsburgh, stronger than Washington. Philadelphia could come every Saturday and do yeah. well here. And of course, another thing you forget is there was no Sunday baseball in yep. Philly until 33, I think. So Hill did not to play their games on Saturdays. They lost yeah. Sunday, which was the best day of the week. So they they have to go travel on Sunday to – they go to New York because New York has Sunday baseball, or they go to Baltimore because um, right. they have ball, Sunday ball down there. But they lost that day of the week because the, the, day, the best days, of course, for the Negro Leagues were the weekends. Um, because the black fans were off those days, you know. So those are the days you make your most money. During the week, you can't make much because people are working. Even you know, in right. those days, simply is true today. And there was no, there wasn't, there was no night baseball in the twenties. In the thirties, they're starting to bring the lights in. 
And that actually saves the Negro Leagues too when they bring the lights and you start having night baseball, which makes it much more feasible to make a few dollars during the week. But the big days were always the weekends and also the holidays, July 4th, um, Memorial Day and Labor Day, the double headers, they'd make a ton of yeah. money on those those days as well. And one of the other things at this point too, Major League Baseball had their Midsummer Classic, and one of the things that the Negro Leagues did was they saw the success of that and said, "Hey, we can do something similar uh, with the East West game." And that would usually be held out in Chicago. Um, I want to say after the first ten years or so, so going into the forties, they started to add a second game. Um, but that was always, you know, a highlight of the summer for, um, you know, the black community, the black press would do a, a major push. Uh, the ballots would be in the newspapers, um, you know, so it was pretty neat to see. And they would kind of keep tabs of running lists of who has how many votes and what place they're in and everything. I'll tell, you, I'll all- tell, you, I'll tell you a little secret about that. Those, yeah. those votes were, were, were actually made up. Uh, you have something I uncovered in my research because there's like a letter there's, there's letters from the owners. And I think it was from Posey, Posey come Posey, who was the, who was the head of the the grays and saying something like, Oh yeah, I had to juggle the votes to make sure this player got on whatever. So those, those votes were, were, were really, they're, they're simply publicity. They did not exist in reality. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that they would publish them in the paper, but they're, they actually, uh, were not real. Even and even so, there were several newspaper guys too. I think Rollo Wilson, who's one of my favorites, yep. said something about like, I have never seen, I have never known one person to ever send a ballot to these fictitious. Like he was, he was kind of grumbling about how this is all made up. I don't know why. Why I wish they would stop this. Chi- I think he used the word childish. This childish notion of them counting votes. And I, I'll tell you the why. I would also not believe it too, is because this isn't the, the Negro League could even couldn't even get their statistics together, you know, <laughs> compiling averages. Right. Think they're going to compile, count up 35,000 ballots and carefully. No. So I. Come I, on, Neil. I, I thought that really happened. <laughs> this is like finding out. I, know, Santa I, Claus. I, tell you this, I was just thinking Santa Claus, <laughs> but yeah, I am. I am. I, I was always dubious, but when I actually saw it mentioned in private correspondence, I was saying, yeah, sure. It's not real. It's not real. That's interesting though. I mean, it does make sense what you're saying to me and obviously you know it. So, um, but I did think when I first uncovered these years ago, I was like, wow, are are they really like sitting there in the in the press room calculating this stuff? And and I thought the same thing. I was like, sometimes these papers aren't getting, you know, I, I'm not gonna lie, sometimes the dates of games would be incorrect, the scores would be incorrect. Are we to believe that these ballot numbers are are truthful? And now I know that they're not. So I, I mean, way. I'm I'm willing to be proved incorrect, but I would say the the evidence that I've uncovered suggests that they were not. And I think just drawing the logical right. inference of if you can't if you can't even get your standings together yeah. correct, which was another sure. again, I'm just going to the black press would be saying they don't even, the, the the wins and losses don't even add up correct. Like what is wrong with like there was there yeah. was always this grumbling back and forth from the, from the sports writers on one end and the owners on the other. The owners would say. Well, we don't have enough money to do things right. And then the, the sports writers would say, the Blacks press would say, how much does it cost us to give people a stamp to send the information in? Right. So there's, sure. there's a lot of that frustration back and forth. And I, it, it, it's frustrating. It was frustrating for me as a, you know, when you're doing the, it's like, can't these guys yes. get their act together and do this better? You know, it would be, it would be so great if we had all this material, but we just right. don't, unfortunately. One thing I don't think people really understand or know, and I'd love to hear your take on this, Neil, is, the importance of the black press and and what they did with you know helping 
break the color barrier. Um, you know, it, it was a, a lot of a lot of writers really pushed Major League Baseball to say, look, here's some guys that you should be looking at. And I believe some tryouts were even scheduled with players other than Jackie Robinson um, for some teams. And and it finally was Branch Rickey to, you know, make the plunge here. But can you talk a little bit about the press and 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 kind of the effort they had in really helping this happen? Uh, the black press was was enormously important. I, I can't even emphasize that more. I mean, they were they they didn't let up on this from about 1933 on. I mean, you, yeah. you don't see much talk about it in the 20s. I think the country wasn't ready for it. It wasn't going to happen. And I think what what opened up the gates a little bit in the 30s was the depression and this idea that hey, you know what, the Major League Baseball is not drawing fans. What's a way to help? Maybe we maybe we can get maybe we start thinking about integrating. And then you see the defender and the, and the courier getting very involved as early as 33 uh, with this. You know, they start to just gingerly start polling, you know, different people. You know, can you get getting them on record on the issue? But they don't yeah. let up on it. And I think certainly Wendell Smith is very important as well in the late mm-hmm. 30s when he's really he's going to each team and trying to get them on record. But there's also, I think, a lot of cynicism some among some of the some of the um some of the, the press thinking this is just never going to happen. They're looking at the, the reality of it. See, it seemed at some points that that Major League Baseball was not going to budge, um, and, but but I think it was a, it was a, a lot of different circumstances that made it happen in the forties. And I think the war was very important. That the war was changing people's ideologies to a certain degree. I think MLB was under some pressure during the war of, you know, we're supposed to be fighting a war for democracy. Uh, how can we tolerate? undemocratic segregation at home and particularly our professional sports team. So I think that helped the effort too. So the right. black press was very, very involved in this effort. And we have to give the communist press a, a bit too, because the daily worker uh, for whatever reason, whether it was, whether it was for, for uh, selfish reasons, but they, they threw their weight um, on this, on this as well. I mean, um, the daily worker was, was there, was their newspaper. It actually was, had decent readerships and, they pressured Landis quite a bit in 1941 and 42. I mean, when Landis finally, Commissioner Landis finally gives his statement that there's no rule uh, against signing black players in 42, that's that's from the result of the black press and the Daily Worker and the unions too. A lot of the unions and the CIA right. are all all pressuring Landis at that moment that you must say something about this. And Landis is like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. There's no rule. And it's left to the owners. And the owners, of course, are still not willing to do anything. Although in 42, Benzwanger, Bill Benzwanger, who was the owner of the Pirates, almost went through with it. I mean, he said, I'll do a tryout. Campanella, who I, I talked about this in the Campanella book, Campanella was one of the mm-hmm. ones they were going to do. Campanella was chosen. And then Benzwanger just wilted under the pressure. I think a lot of pressure was put on him yes. not to do it. And that's why it didn't happen in 42. And that's and, and really the reason why it happened in 45 is because Brand Tricky was made of stronger stuff. And basically, mm-hmm. I'm going to see it through. Uh, whereas Ben Zwanger, if he had had a little bit more backbone, could have done it in 42, I think. But coming back to the black press, the black press, as I said, really wouldn't let up on the issue. Um, I think they were very influential. But it was it was really a, a group of sports writers who really were involved in the effort. I think Wendell Smith and Sam mm-hmm. Lacey, and you can throw Joe Bostick in there too, was important. But I think all of them were 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 really on board with this effort, you know, of trying to make it happen. And again, there was some ambivalence too among the owners of the Negro Leagues of like, what's going to happen if we integrate? I think that was always right. a problem. 
of, yeah, integration is good, but what about our business that we've sweated over for 20 years? Is it going to kill our business? Well, yeah, it is going to kill our business and yeah. kill their business. So, but I think there was some aggravation about that as well of, uh, you know, why are you guys pushing this? And there was also a feeling once integration occurred that the black press abandoned the Negro leagues to a certain degree. And there was yes. some truth in that because you do, if you look at the coverage by 48 and 49 in the black press, uh, about half of it is now going to Major League Baseball as far as African-American right. players in Major League Baseball. And a fraction is going to the Negro League. So sure. it happens very quickly where the press does decide that this is more important and this is what we're going to get behind. So, But again, the black press's efforts are cannot be underestimated. Yeah. No, the, the whole idea of a big league symposium and the black press really trying to put that pressure on white owners. And, and you're right. There were so many that would on record say, Oh, I would be okay with this. I would be fine with giving a tryout. And then the time would come. I forget the players, but I know there was supposed to be a tryout at Fenway and the players showed and nobody from ownership was there. And, you know, that happened multiple times. Um, you know, and I love what you said about branch Ricky just being made of, of tougher stuff basically. And it's so true. Um, but again, I, the, without the black press pushing, who knows when this this all would have happened? And uh, you know what is sad about it is it did create the decline of Negro League baseball. And yeah, the black press didn't cover it as much. But those first couple of years, of Jackie Robinson, I mean, the black press they were they were all over, um, you know, covering what he was doing up in Brooklyn and Montreal and down spring training in Florida. Uh, and so forth. So it wasn't as if they stopped covering baseball. They just turned their sights to Jackie at that point. They did. And, and, and black fans did the same things, particularly mm-hmm. up in the, up in the East. I think in the South, there was still the early baseball was able to hang on, but you, you really did see this, this dramatic transformation of suddenly, you know, their black fans are going to see in New York, they're going to see Dodger games. And even when mm-hmm. they, in Philly, they're going, you know, black fans are not going to see the stars. They're going to go see Jackie when he comes to, to shy park to play, yeah. to play the Philly. So that, that was happening. And it happens very fast. I mean, you, you see a drop off in attendance in 47 and 48 gets even steeper. So it's, it's the Negro leagues, I think as far as being viable, entities i think are pretty much gone by the early 50s and as far as the east is concerned i mean the stars are dead after 52 but i think in new york they were already there were no teams in new york anymore yeah. they all start all the east coast the big east coast venues start to die out in chicago so I and mean, what you have after the early 50s is basically the monarchs who were always very well run and then the clowns who are you know controversial mm-hmm. because of some of the stuff they're they're clowning that they did Right. Um, but they, you know, they managed to develop a few good players in the fifties, you know, like Ernie Banks and of course, Henry Aaron and people like that. And, and the Monarchs managed to sell players almost every year into the fifties, which is quite amazing. They managed to still keep going just by flipping a couple players to the, to the major leagues. But even they right. finally, by the end of the fifties are, are done. And then that's pretty much the end of the Negro leagues. There's an excellent book. Um, now I, you've, you, I'm sure you, Neil, have heard about this situation with Bill Vec and, you know, Bill Veck was a, a baseball owner and, uh, you know, there was talk about him wanting to, um, you know, buy the Phillies in the, I want to say it was the early 40s and ultimately just bring a bunch of Negro League players over. Um, it, then it's been debunked since, um, I think he wrote about it in his autobiography, but it's been debunked. So there's a lot of, you know, question about whether that was true or not, if Veck was going to actually do that. But there's a book um 
called The Makings of Heroes, How the 1943 Black Phillies Broke Baseball's Color Line. And it's by an author, and I hope I'm getting the name right, Alan Featherston or Featherstone. And um, it's a really, really good read. Um, it, it brings this really neat, like, what if scenario to Philadelphia? Um, what if the Phillies were to, you know, go through with this and sign, you know, um, a bunch of these great Negro players and how would they fare in the National League? Um, just a really good book. I don't know if you've heard of that or, um, or if you know about the Vex situation and, and if you can – once and for all, for me at least, tell me if that is true or not. I, I think there's more truth to it than than people have believed. I, I remember there was an article in one of the Sabre publications basically almost flatly denying it ever occurred. Um, right. I, I was able to find w- at least one piece of confirmatory evidence. There was a um, Frank Young, you may have heard of, otherwise known as Faye, who wrote for The Defender. Mm-hmm. He was a sports writer for The Defender. Um, I think in the late 40s, early 50s, he was at some banquet and he wrote about this banquet in the Defender at the time. And he talked about Vec and he, and, and, and Faye, Frank Young said, he's quoting Vec saying Vec, Vec then talked about the time he almost bought the Philadelphia Phillies in 1942. So that was, that was an actual concrete uh, proof of Vec stating this long before his biography. So a lot of people thought he cooked this up for his biography, which was written, sure. I think, in the 60s, many years later. But this is one piece of evidence suggesting that, hey, Vec definitely said this. And and Young apparently was involved in the effort because Young was a, a knowledgeable sports writer who I think had given Vec some advice on players. So I do believe Vec thought about it. Whether he actually went as far as he said as to like go to the Phillies and go, say, "Hey, I'm going to buy the Phillies," and tell tell right. Landis who who quashed it or whatever the story is, that I don't know. We have we have no confirmation of that. Um, right. I think I do think Vec may have thought about it. Let's let, let I'll go as far as that. I don't know how far he would have. I personally don't think it would have worked in Philadelphia because the city was so racist in, at that time. Yeah. And that that was another thing that people forget about Robinson being suitable for New York. You know. Today is a very liberal city. Even even in the 40s, it was the most liberal city in the country. Philadelphia was not liberal. No. And you can see why they were they were behind in integrating all their sports teams. It wasn't the Eagles and and, and uh, uh, the Warriors. I mean, they just the, the city was 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 not particularly uh, going to be open to that. So I think it would have been right. a very tough sell. Even the Phillies were so dreadful a team. You would think that that that's the whole irony of in 42 when Campanelle also went to uh, the Phillies, when this whole talk yeah. of tryouts was being offered and tried to get them interested, and they all they, they gave him some weaselly response. It's like they had a chance to get a hometown guy like Campanella. Yes, if, again, yeah. if they, and that might have saved the Phillies franchise. It would have saved. Uh, uh, I can't remember the guy who owned the team at the time, but he was someone who was running them into the ground, and had no money. Could have saved mm-hmm. his own his own um, ownership uh, with that, but right. they they just would not do it. Uh, and of course, you know. Black players playing in Philadelphia had a hard time once once the Phillies integrated. I mean, black players and other teams had a hard time. So I think it would have been yeah. very difficult um, to to make it happen. Uh, and I'm not sure Vec, you know, Vec may have thought about it, but I'm not sure it would have ever worked. Hmm. Well, either way, it's an interesting what if scenario. The makings of heroes had a 43 black Phillies broke baseball's color line. Definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, is baseball doing enough to commemorate the Negro Leagues? Do you think? Um, you know, we we have 
you know, every once in a while we'll, we'll wear the Negro league jerseys. Um, you know, we'll, we'll celebrate a player here or there, but is major league baseball doing enough in your mind right now to kind of, um, educate youth and to just educate fans in general about, Hey, there were some really cool ball players that did some really nice things that really helped society out. Is there sort of, you know, in your opinion, enough that major league baseball is doing, or can they be doing more? They they've done a few things. I mean, about twenty odd years ago, they they threw that grant that that Hall of Fame grant. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It was like a quarter million. I don't know if it was a quarter million dollars or whatever it was um, to to do this whole. Um, you know, stati- they're going to gather statistics on the Negro, mm-hmm. hire people to gather statistics yeah. and also to write up write up a, a book on it. I, w- I was involved and in I wrote one of the chapters in the book. Uh, so that was some something they did do. And I think they do, you know, they bring recognition. Um, I think, you know, with these, with the, with the throwback jerseys and stuff like that. Um, and they probably believe this, this idea of making the Negro Leagues a major league is another positive step. Although, as I said, I have my misgivings about it, as we've talked about sure. this already in this interview. Uh, I'm not sure what else they can do at this point. I, I think they've done a good, I have to, I have to say they certainly have done so much more than anyone could have ever envisioned 20, 30 years ago when, yeah. you know, people didn't know anything about the Negro League. I think most people do know something about it now. Right. Um, I don't think people know enough. I would say. I think people, if you say Negro leagues, they'll say, "Okay, Buck O'Neill, you know, <laughs> or, yeah. or Satchel Page," and that, that, that's, Irvin, about, yeah. that's about it. Yeah, they mm-hmm. don't. They don't really know more than that. I wish. I wish people did know more than that. But I think they've done well uh, with that. I, I think one thing that I wish they had done was when they when the Indians changed their name. I, I, mm-hmm. It's too bad they didn't take um, a Negro League team from Cleveland and use that. That would have been a good way. I think, that would be nice. Negros. Yeah. yeah. Something like that would have been a would have been a good thing. I mean, I yeah. think in Philadelphia, what have we done here? We've got we've got a plaque at Forty Fourth and Parkside, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's I think a nice got, mural down there. Yeah, yeah, I think we've got something at Hilldale Park. If there isn't, there should be something. A plaque, uh, yeah. Um, in other places too. I don't. I don't even know where the Philadelphia Giants played in this. I think they played in Columbia, like up in North Philly somewhere, if I recall they, correctly. Yeah, and I think they played basically on the campus. I think it's where Penn is now. There was a um, well, Penn was still there, but there was a, a field down there that they were at. I want to say, was it the parade ground, something like that? I think. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds right. So, I mean, I, I I'm not sure what else they can do at this point. I mean, I think anything they can do. I mean, I think the Hall of Fame has done a pretty good job. They've let in a lot of players. I mean, how many? How many? We've had quite a few admitted in the last few years. Um, so I think they've done a good job at, at, at bringing recognition to a lot of these forgotten right. players. So, you know, it's been a long time now. You have to really, I mean, the Eagle Leagues have been gone for many years. And, yeah. and, we're, and, and the players that we have left, I don't think we have, it's, it's unfortunate we don't have many left no. to talk about their experiences. And, you know, when I did the book on Campanella, which is now, now 10, 12 years ago, I was able to interview some of his teammates who were still around at that time. I mean, who played right. in the thirties and forties, but they're gone. I mean, Monty Irvin's gone. I mean, Monty Irvin yeah. was a great source of information for someone who could tell me about Jackie Robinson and tell me about, about playing in the Negro leagues in the forties. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you feel there's something more that they could be doing or do you have any ideas yourself or what do you think? I, I think my issue isn't necessarily major league baseball. I think it's more so particularly here in Philadelphia. Um, you know, I just would like to see, you know, the Phillies, it, it, there's so much more I think that they can do to educate. Um, you know, we have such a rich history 
whether it be uh, players with Hilldale or players with the Stars or players, you know, Octavius Cotto, for one, with the Pythians. I mean, there's just such a, a rich history, and I don't think the Phillies, who are in a, a in the position to kind of do something, um, I just don't think they do enough about it. And um, now on the flip side, you know, and this is sad, there's probably, uh, you know, a minute part of the population that even cares nor knows. Uh, you know, it's it's the people like you and I or the, the real hardcore fans that are aware of this that would like to see something. Um, I think it would, be, it would behoove them to do it because, you know, the Phillies don't don't get a lot of African-American fans. That's been a problem. Like Major League yeah. Baseball itself doesn't get that many African-American fans. If you want to, it might be a, a, a way to get some people interested. Sure. You know, look at the history here. Uh, that we have in this community, and we have a, we have a, we have a great history. I mean, of, yeah. of, of 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 Negro League baseball being played here. This was this was the center of it. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I mean, now, now that you say that, I mean, I feel like the, the Phillies don't do enough with it. I mean, I think at the park, I haven't been to Citizens back in a couple of years, but there there there's some pictures, I believe, you know, in, in, in of like you know, they have like a little little mini museum yeah. or something somewhere in there. They well, they've moved the Wall of Fame that used to be on Ashburn Alley. Now it's over. Um, now it's like on, in, I think it's over in left field there, the where Bulls Barbecue's at. Um, and yeah, they have a couple paintings, but I'm thinking, uh, you know, like the Wall of Fame, for example, right? They used to have a, a lot of the Philadelphia A's enshrined in that, and then several years ago they pulled them out. Uh, you know, get rid of the A's, and um, yeah, so even the Philadelphia A's, you can make the argument for it's you know uh, forgotten about. Um. You know, but at least they have their names like Eddie Plank and Chief Bender and, you know, Jimmy Fox. Their names at least are there in the ballpark. You know, but you think back like, uh, you know, Saul White or Danny McLennan or, or, you know, Tank Carr. None of these names are anywhere. And um, I just feel like it's a big piece that's missing. And, you know, you also think about, you know, I know you mentioned the fans, but you think about the racial composition of Major League Baseball right now and where it's at with the African-American um, you know, community and, and, and the amount of players that are black that are playing, it just continues to dwindle. Um, so yeah, you don't know if, if they were to, if major league teams that are in areas where there's a ton of, of Negro league history, if they were to do something, would that, you know, get more kids playing? Um, I don't know, but I just feel like not doing anything and just kind of standing pat's not necessarily the right move. Well, I, I mean, I actually think I'd rather almost see them, I'd like to see the Phillies do more and more to encourage encourage uh, kids to play ball, African American yeah. kids to play baseball. I mean, I know they have you know RBI yes. baseball in yeah. the inner city. The Phillies have gotten involved with that, but I mean, they probably could even do more because you got to get you, you create fans at a young age. You get people interested right. at a young age. And if you're not playing baseball or developing an interest in baseball when you're a young kid, you're probably not going to become interested when you're 12, 13, 14 years old. So you got to get right. kids playing early. And these days, you know, football and basketball get people real early, get early yeah. on. That's not, I mean, just just African Americans, it's white kids too. I mean, I think baseball's you know having its issues. I mean, they have an older yeah. older fan base than, than than they'd like to have. Um, but yeah, I, I I think there's there there's there's work to be done, and and probably there could be more done at Citizens yeah. Bank Park. Yeah, and I think part of it with baseball is there is it's a long apprenticeship, you know, whereas football and basketball. If you're one of the, you know, the half of 1% aspiring to make it as a pro, the route there, I don't want to say it's easier because none of it's easy, but there's a clearer route. 
as opposed to baseball, you're going to get drafted. Odds are, you know, you're going to, you know, meddle around in the minor leagues for a couple of years and, you know, maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't, who knows? Um, and you may make no money in the entire process. Um, you know, so then I also think you have travel baseball, and this is a whole other topic that, you know, we don't need to get into now, but you have travel uh, and youth baseball where it's just, you know, you got to have money to play and it's tournaments every weekend. It's, it's a suburban sport. I, I think it, that's what it's, you're saying. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like hockey almost. Yeah, it's it's become that way. And when I was playing yeah. as a kid, baseball, there's, there was no, never, no such thing as travel teams. Never heard of such a thing. Right. You know, you played you play Little League and you played Pony League and Colt mm-hmm. League and whatever. That was what we had back in New England. And there was no travel teams. Yeah. Um, and that was, and you played, you played, you played with your friends locally and you went, you went down to the field and played and stuff like that. I mean, it did a lot of that, that kind of play, but now it's so organized and, and the commitment is so high and I, and yeah, so I, I do think it's a suburban, yeah. it's become a suburban sport. Um, and I think that's what, that's what it draws from, unfortunately, for better, or for worse, I guess, except for, except for some of the foreign players. Right. Yeah, and I do think the Phillies do a very good job in the inner city, in the communities, working with places, whether it be through RBI or I'm thinking like Marion Anderson Rec Center and some others in Philadelphia. They do an exceptional job, I think, getting youth that way to play the game. Um, but I'm also thinking of the history of it. And and to be honest, Neil, you know, I, I'm credentialed with Major League Baseball. I'm down at the ballpark, you know, quite often. I would be shocked and if I were to go in and start talking to some players about the history of the game and and some of these teams, right? Like tell me name five players from the Kansas City Monarchs or something like that, right? I don't know if you could get a lot of players to do that, you know? And that's another thing that just blows me away well, that's, that you that's, that's nothing new. You might remember, you yeah. remember Vince Vince Coleman, the famous Vince I think it was <laughs> This might have been back in back in eighty seven, I think. Uh-huh. And I think they asked Vince Coleman. It was the fortieth anniversary of Jackie's integration. They said, "Who's Vince? Who's Jackie Robin?" And he's like, "I don't uh. know who that guy is." And he was so. I mean, I, you know, ball players tend to be in their own little yeah. bubble world, so it wouldn't it would not surprise me. There are some who are very, you know, interested in in, in the past and interested yes. in, in what came before them, and like the, yeah. But there, I think probably they're the exception to the rule, yeah. like we are. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. We're sitting here at 1030 at night talking about players that played 100 and 100 some years ago. So, yeah, we're we're the oddballs in that case. <laughs> Neil, look, I, I really appreciate you taking so much of your time here today. It was a real pleasure to speak with you and, um, you know, to just walk down memory lane with some of this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I really, again, can't thank you enough for for taking the time and, you know, with all your work, what are what's uh, a project you're working on now? What's uh, where where can we find out more about your work and what you're doing? Well, I've moved away from sports because I felt like I had done that to death, and I was hoping to kind of expand into more general history. So the last book I did was about World War One. I'm mm-hmm. I'm actually at this moment talking to my agent about about some other projects. So I'm I'm hoping to have something something uh, start another project sometime this year, but. I'm, it, it will probably again be non-sports if it's if it's uh, what we're talking about. But I'm I'm not going to divulge anything more until I know more. <laughs> but uh, I, there's so much great work being done in baseball these days and in the Negro leagues and stuff. I almost feel like I have nothing more to contribute right. to the field. Um, I did it. I felt like I you know I, I lived it for for about ten years and. It's like time to do something else. So that was kind of my philosophy with it. But uh, it's funny. Just recently, I had, I decided to go through all my papers and scan them and then throw them out. And I was going through all my I've been going through all my notes for these books. And I was like, 
wow, I really was crazy. I really, I can't believe all these things I read. It's an immense amount of work, and it, but it was, it was, it was very rewarding and very, you know, it, it was fascinating. I, I say that to, to this day, it was fascinating uh, learning about these leagues and also just learning about these communities, the whole, the whole separate community and, and Philadelphia, because a lot of the work I did was in Philadelphia and seeing uh, these people and, and, and the kind of lives they, they, they made for themselves. Neil, what's your uh, website for those interested in, in learning more about you? It's just my name. It's www.neilnelanctot.com. And if you want to drop me a line there, you can drop me a line and I'll get back to you. Neil, I really appreciate it. Neil Lanto, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs>